Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. This episode is brought to you by Sweet Process. If you're looking to grow your law practice, who's going to be taking care of what you're doing today? There's a reason that the fastest growing law firms that we've interviewed on this podcast all swear by SOPs, and that's because that enables them to focus on new things without stuff falling apart once they leave the room. Sweet Process was designed from the ground up to help teams ranging from solos plus freelancers to enterprise scale law firms create and manage the SOPs that allow your team to execute correctly every single time. And at the end of the day, that allows you, the owner, to work on your business create new process, or even kick back and relax every once in a while. And for a limited time, listeners of the Law Firm Growth Podcast will be able to upgrade to a 28-day free trial by going to sweetprocess.com slash lawfirmgrowth. Again, that's sweetprocess.com slash lawfirmgrowth. See what process can do for your firm by signing up today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos. And today, I wanted to talk about a business model that is so widespread, I can almost guarantee that somebody listening to this podcast is either using it or knows someone that is. And um, if this does happen to be you, there's no shame in it because it's a totally logical uh, place to want to take your law practice as far as your positioning goes. But what's so dangerous about this model is that the negative second order consequences can take years to show up and even more years to unwind. And that model is some variation on air quotes, top of the line service for a fair price. So zooming back a bit, the way that this kind of got on my radar is that because in the process of running case fuel, we're doing more or less quick two minute audits on the website of pretty much whoever ends up responding to our marketing, which ends up being hundred or so law firms per month. And over the years, the patterns really start to show up. And it's gotten to the point where we're me or one of the people on our intake team ends up seeing a site, we can pretty much see what the conversation is going to be like. It's like that scene in the Matrix where Cypher is reading the code and he goes, I don't even see the letters. I just see, you know, blonde, brunette, red. You get the idea. So anyways, without fail, what we've come to expect whenever I see somebody who has a positioning message around those same lines, top of the line service for a fair price, I know that the person who ends up being on the other end of that phone line, whether they scheduled it or whether we're calling them, is more than likely going to be stressed, under-resourced, and pretty desperate, probably depending on how long they've been towing the line and, and making that their positioning. And you can take my word on that or not, but there are a lot of principles in business strategy that explain exactly how this ends up happening. So I want to go into some of the work of Michael Porter. So if you don't know Michael Porter, he's probably on the Mount Rushmore of business strategy thinkers of you know, the last uh, you know, 20th century, pretty much. He was a Harvard business law professor, huge in the consulting game in the 80s and 90s, uh, still somebody who's taught today. So if you've taken a business class, chances are you've heard of the five forces model at some point. But the one I want to talk about right now is Porter's generic strategies model. So what Porter said was that if you take a look at the market leaders, they'll generally fall into one of two generic strategies. The first strategy is cost of leadership, and the second strategy is differentiation. And you can basically bucket, think of most of the big brands in history, they're going to fall into one of these two buckets. And, and two of the ones that I, I want to kind of call that are you know in the news these days and something you probably interact with on a day-to-day basis would be Apple and Amazon. They're both fantastically successful companies, but the way that they get there could not be more different. Speaking of Apple, right? So believe it or not, um, this podcast was actually recorded and produced on a 2013 Lenovo ThinkPad until the end of last year. And around that time, I ended up purchasing my first MacBook Pro. And I, I probably paid 
three or four times what I would have paid for a ThinkPad of comparable specifications, power, et cetera. And three, four months into it, I do not regret it one bit. Apple has focused on making a superior product and that's why they're able to charge three or four times as much. And more or less, the market has validated that that philosophy is something that people want. And as a result, they're one of the biggest companies in the country right now. Now, on the other hand, let's take Amazon. I recently read a a book that was uh, Amazon's culture came into it, but there's a really famous story of Jeff Bezos. When he was in the early days, instead of buying desks from Ikea, he would actually buy doors from Home Depot and he would mount them on milk crates or cinder blocks or something like that for the initial office they had because it saved them something like 15% versus the cost of a desk that they'd buy from Ikea, which isn't expensive in the first place. And this is ultimately the kind of thinking that has allowed Amazon to become the default provider for all things pretty much under the sun. I get packages lost all the time on Prime. There's some inconveniences, but I keep ordering because it's free and it's trained me and many consumers around the nation to just do that because it's convenient, it's cheap, right? And you'd better believe that there is a cost associated to stuff like delivering Prime, but the brilliance of them as a company is being able to cut the less important corners in a way that allows them to eat the cost and still grow as a company. So basically, we're looking at two companies in the top five of all the companies that are in the US and two completely different strategies. But one of the things I want to point out is this concept of focus. There really is no way to pursue two competing strategies. So, I mean, do you think Jeff Bezos cares about the quality of Amazon service? Absolutely. Do you think Tim Cook of Apple cares about reducing price of products? I'm sure he does. But when a decision has to be made that puts one at the odds of the other, Amazon will make the call in favor of price and Apple will make the call in favor of quality. And neither of these companies or many successful companies at all are going to be going for best quality and the best price. And what Porter referred to this as the stuck in the middle phenomenon. And from the data that he found, the people that are in the middle of the market tend to have the lowest profit. And there's people that have high profit at the top of the market. There's actually also people that have high profit at the bottom of the market. But in the middle, it's no man's land and you're just getting battered. So it's pretty obvious when you think about it, the fair price aspect of these stressed out law firms that we've been speaking to for years is what's preventing them from making any margin on their service, right? Because basically you're trying to create a high quality service, but you're not going to be making any margin on it. So those firms have the impossible task of making something out of nothing. And it repeats every single time that they sign a new client, whether it takes them a week to realize or 10 years to realize. So Great product, in this case, great service for a law firm requires resources. And it's whether it's, you know, hiring top talent, investing in technology to make your deliverable better, you know, training people, taking the time to spend people so they understand your process, having a fancy office to put your clients at ease, or, you know, even springing for the fancy mineral water. It all takes resources. Even if you want to spend less money than your competition, you still need to spend more time to create process, which is much harder to come by if you're charging less per client. And Whether you realize this or not, if your clients aren't paying for it, you are. And this goes for the time too. Like think of all the businesses that you know, where the owner is rolling up their sleeves to work in the business instead of on the business because they're understaffed or overwhelmed by the amount of clients that are coming in. And if this sounds like something that you've been going through, chances are that your firm is stuck in the middle. Now, like I said in the beginning, this is not something to be ashamed of. I think the reason that people gravitate towards this is because that's what they would want themselves as consumers. It makes logical sense that this is what the client would want, but what we just described are the second order consequences of this business model, which do take a lot of time to show up. Super common feature of this and a narrative that we're seeing often at this is this kind of field of dreams marketing strategy. 
because certainly, you know, you're martyring yourself for a reason on every client you sign and not charging what you really should. Certainly over time, the referrals are going to start pouring in sooner or later. But basically by the time you realize this isn't going to happen and quick hint, it's because the client has no idea what you should be charging. <laughs> you can charge whatever you want. Uh, well, not necessarily whatever you want, but you get the idea. But by the time you realize that the referrals don't quite come in because you've been martyring yourself, it's already too late. You know, you don't have the margin on the clients you're signing, which is what you would need to invest in real marketing outside of getting down your knees and praying next to the phone while the, the cowboys pile up. And hopefully it hasn't gotten to the point where you've also maxed out your credit cards and racked up back taxes waiting for stuff to come around because then you're going to be in Hail Mary mode big time and chasing, you know, the crazy outsized returns that might never come. So hopefully, you know, I've put enough fear in you to kind of <laughs> make the middle path not seem like something that you want to do. But some people might be thinking, what if you just decided to be the cost leader? So let's kind of explore what that strategy looks like for a law firm. So it is doable, but it's worth looking at what running a company that prioritizes for this looks like, right? In the end, you're going to have to let go of quality on some level, which is something that most of the firms and most of the lawyers that we speak to are very, very reluctant to do, right? So if you basically accept that you're going to have low margin as a given, in order to make any money, you need to be bigger than anyone else. It's basically a lot of a small thing instead of a small amount of a big number. That sounds obvious, but let's look at the companies that do that sort of thing. So we mentioned Amazon before, which has definitely done some impressive things in the world of business, but let's just say uh, it's an understatement to say that they are not known for an empowering work culture, especially look at the stories that come out of their warehouses and that kind of thing. Think of the other companies that fit in this category, McDonald's, Walmart, companies like that. So in order to provide a low cost product, when your product is people's work, as it would be for a law firm, you need to hire people cheap and pay them very little. So you're going to need to hire people that are green, fresh out of law school. You're going to have to have work being done by paralegals that some people might expect are being done by associates or partners. You're probably going to have to rent an office in a cheap part of town. You're probably going to have to use those weird light bulbs that look like you're on the set of Blade Runner or some weird science fiction movie, right? But you're also going to be attracting low rent clients, right? And sure, this might make money for you in the long run. But in my experience, and most of the experience of the clients that we work with, people that you charge less a lot of the times don't ask for less, right? A lot of the times they're more demanding than people who can't afford your services and are willing to pay a premium, right? So, you know, if you kind of imagine it, if, if you're charging $500, you might be charging $500. And the only reason that they're signing with you is because they only have $800 to their name. And, you know, the flip side would be charging $5,000 for somebody who has, you know, half a million in their home equity, right? And it's a totally different ballgame. You're literally talking about having stewardship over almost someone's entire you know, life savings, right? And, um, you know, last but not least, this is kind of one of my favorite quotes from Tim Ferriss. So he basically says, you know, there's always people in a large enough group that forgot to take their meds in the morning, right? And let's just say for the sake of an argument, it's, it's one out of a thousand people is just true psychos that I'm sure you've encountered at some point in your life, right? There's somebody who wakes up like that every day. You're probably not going to encounter somebody like that if the group is 10 people, but you take that size out to something the size of, I don't know, New York City or Los Angeles then, you know, that's how you have a situation where, you know, people are getting murdered, banks are getting robbed, all that kind of stuff every week. You know, it's just the aggregate of that small percentage of people that are <laughs> a little bit unhinged are going to show up. And unfortunately, the more people that you work with, the more people that you hire, the bigger that pool gets. So that's an unfortunate reality of dealing with real scale, which is what you ultimately need if you want to run a cost leadership business. And by the way, unless you have a team of developers and something like $500 million in venture funding, you're going to have a hard time competing against a little outfit called LegalZoom that you might have 
heard of, practice area dependent. So there you have it. So we got three options stuck in the middle, almost guaranteed to fail over time. The cost leadership model, which I'm pretty sure that you don't want if you really think about it. And that basically leaves us with the last model, which is differentiation. So differentiation and being able to charge a premium for your service is something to aspire to, but it's also a mindset that you need to make decisions with. And even though you can pursue higher quality, if you, you know, you can't leave costs to just blow up, there is a limit to how much of a premium you can really charge. And, you know, if you're in the situation where you might be on the cost leadership side or you're stuck in the middle, there's a way to get there step-by-step to to get to the point where it's something you work towards. And that dear listeners is what we're going to be covering on the next solo pod episode of law firm growth podcast. So If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and I will see you week after next Tuesday at 8 a.m. on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.